This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. Singer Equipment Company provides industry-leading service to restaurants nationwide. Whether you're expanding or upgrading or just need a partner to help navigate supply chain challenges, Singer Equipment Company is here for you. Visit SingerEquipment.com to learn more. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And all of them, every single one of them, probably knows that here on Tech Bytes, we look at the intersection of food and technology. We talk to innovators, we talk to CEOs, founders, people making new foods for us to eat and making new foods to save the planet. So we have something to eat later. We spent a lot of time on this show since we started back in January of 2015, looking at food innovations from a lot of different points of view. And one of the most uh, common, popular, forward press releases in my inbox every single day are food products created from plants to replicate animal products. We've had a number of founders on the show, a number of innovators, people who are creating shrimp in a lab grown from cell technology, people creating burgers in a warehouse with different types of technology and ingredients, all a push to mimic a beef burger or an actual shrimp or dairy milk ice cream, yogurt, all those types of things. You've seen them in the stores. And if you're a faithful listener, you've heard many of the episodes. So I was really quite intrigued to learn about a historically vegan frozen dessert company called Coconut Bliss. And as you can imagine, they made coconut-based ice cream. Delicious. And they recently launched cow milk dairy ice cream. And that's so unusual. Usually we see the reverse, or usually now today we see animal dairy and plant dairy, I guess we call it, completely separated, two different camps. They should almost be in two separate coolers in the supermarket. But I was so intrigued by that. I said, we have to find more, have to find out more about this. What is the pivot into dairy? Because as we know, there are so many thoughts and issues about what is driving the plant-based food movement that we just had to we just had to find out. So today I'm very happy to say we have Jason Karp, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Human Co. And that's human company, like human beings. And they are the entity that purchased Coconut Bliss, now called Cosmic Bliss, and put dairy ice cream onto the roster. Um, And Jason has a very interesting background, which we'll tee up a little bit to sort of get us to the point of the cosmic bliss, but I'm gonna warn everybody, answers are gonna be short and sweet to keep us on the storyline and you will want to know more. So just be prepared to be a little bit disappointed that at the end of the show, you're gonna have questions, but that's maybe a good thing for seasons to come. So Jason, thank you for joining us this morning. 
Yes, thank you for having me. Um, you have uh, a typical founder background in that your your motivation of starting your companies is personal, and you had a problem that you needed to solve, and so. Necessity is always the mother of invention in many respects. You in your 20s had some very serious health issues and we're not getting, and we're getting some pretty um, dire reports from your medical professionals. So you turn to nutrition and the human body and sort of re-engineering what you eat and how you lived to heal yourself. Is that, I mean, it's very succinct, but is that essentially what happened? Yeah, yeah. It was about 22 years ago. Um, I was diagnosed with a with a host of of pretty significant autoimmune diseases. The worst of which was a degenerative eye disease where I was going blind uh, at the age of 23. And they told me there was no cure for what I had, uh, and I would have to sort of accept that fate. And uh, through a lot of research, conversations, rabbit holes. Um, I ended up reversing my diseases and uh, effectively curing my eye disease through food and lifestyle. Which is absolutely astonishing and amazing and breathtaking and almost unbelievable if you're not the living proof of it. Um, And your story, I mean, it's an amazing one anyway. It feels particularly salient at this point in time when the world is, I don't know, going into year three of a global pandemic or going into year two. Yeah. I'm not even quite sure where we where we place ourselves on the timeline right now because we're still very much in it. Um, being able to control um, and repair your body through food and lifestyle is, is amazing. When you say you did research, was that like a lab research? Was it elaborate? Was it scientific? Was it expensive? Do you mean research like... I'm not going to eat this food for a little while. I am going <laughs> to eat this food for a little while. How does yeah, my body it, like it? Like, where where it, were you in the spectrum? Of- it it was a mix. I mean, I was uh, I was sort of trained in uh, engineering and mathematics. Um, I was always a very data driven uh, person. My first job was as a, a quantitative researcher, um, which they now call a data scientist. Um, uh, I was in finance, uh, in, in actually the hedge fund industry for just, uh, just over 20 years actually. Um, and it was, a, it was a mix. I mean, I, um, I've always been a bit, uh, anti-establishment, um, and, uh, and always someone that has had trouble accepting authority. Um, and so when I was sort of delivered these diagnoses, I just didn't believe it. I mean, I was an athlete in college. I was an athlete my whole youth. Um, I always thought I was really healthy. And then within a year and a half of working in New York City in a very high stress job, um, I, everything kind of came out in terms of my illnesses. And it just it just didn't seem logical. It didn't seem right. And um, I just started to try to unravel different correlations and different uh, symptoms that I was having. And so I did a lot of, uh, a lot of reading, a lot of trips to the library back then. It was very early days of the internet. So there wasn't a whole lot on the internet. I spoke to a lot of, um, what they now call functional medicine doctors, but back then they were sort of considered quacks, uh, even though it's a very well accepted, 
uh, modality of medicine today, which is addressing the root causes of disease instead of the symptoms themselves, which is more of the kind of Western, you know, uh, uh, treating the symptoms through pharmaceuticals is much more of a Western medicine approach. Um, and ultimately, I had, uh, n- you know, not to go off on too much of a tangent for the podcast, but I had a very bizarre uh, atopic sort of skin disease set of symptoms, which manifested as psoriasis and eczema. Uh, and there were some obscure research papers that connected atopic skin diseases to my eye disease. Hmm. Um, and I, uh, I had one instance in my, uh, about four years earlier, uh, when I was in college, uh, of when I had those skin diseases manifest. And it was actually during uh, hell weekend when I was pledging my fraternity, when I went three days basically without sleep and only consuming beer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I just sort of developed this naive hypothesis that if I could reverse my skin disease, then maybe it would have an impact on my eye disease. And in that kind of journey of effectively giving up alcohol, giving up gluten, giving up caffeine, changing my sleeping habits, changing my exercise behavior, uh, all in an attempt to sort of see if I could improve my skin disease. I started noticing a lot of improvement uh, in a few weeks. My vision started to come back. uh, And then that gave me kind of the positive feedback loop to start to really recognize that maybe it was food uh, and maybe it was lifestyle that was contributing to this. And then I went all in on effectively a, a pretty strict elimination diet um, you know, learning biofeedback methods like meditation and, and sort of calming down my, my central nervous system, trying to lower my cortisol levels, uh, all through kind of um, methods that are now well accepted, uh, but back then were considered sort of woo-woo. <laughs> One of the two, two things um, that I note about, I mean, note about your story for this conversation. And again, it is exceptional um, to sort of drill down and, and have the wherewithal to keep to keep going back and keep looking for answers. The first thing is that you talk about, you know, the different practices that you were looking at or the different, you know, philosophies or schools about eating and, and body and what you put in and, and how it functions. I find it interesting in that it's actually cyclical. I mean, you say back then it wasn't accepted, now it is. Um, and sort of that arc of where we are in terms of, you know, accepting things outside of a strict, you know, pharmacy doctor arena. But at inset, most of these things were the original things accepted as practice and how you take care of your body. You know, uh, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, I think about the origins of things like acupuncture, which is thousands of years old. And, you know, fundamentally... In, in those time periods before humans had the ability to create a, a, a chemically engineered ingredient, everything was something that grew naturally. All medicine was something that grew naturally. And it was things that you found around you and, and in your space from, you know, many cultures and, and schools of thought. So it's interesting, I think, just to note that it's, it's cyclical and it has to do perhaps with what is currently available to, you know, humans as the accepted like norms or the new thing. Um, but sometimes on this show, we've actually done things where the old technology is the new technology. 
Oh, yeah. um, where something goes away and then it comes back and it's like, oh, we're we're discovering the mind-body connection and how important what you eat is to your body. And it's like, um, <laughs> that doesn't really sound very new to me, but it kind of is, I guess, new. So that's one thing that's notable where many of these things and, and ideologies and philosophies and what food can do to your body have been around for a long time, which I think essentially is part of your human philosophy in terms of eating and what we eat, which then pivots me into your experience and what you're driving towards with your two businesses, Human Company and Hugh Kitchen. They are about human preservation, human functionality, living physically the best life, which is your driver in the food space, which is a different driver from the environmental point of view of many of the founders in this new food space, because their driver ultimately is human survival in terms of having a planet that will not explode. And they are creating food products to help the environment to help people live longer on a planet that doesn't explode. So your, your, your driver is a little bit different um, in terms of the, the goals that you have with the types of food that we eat. So taking us from that point of view of wanting people to, in a, in a very, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think simplifying it is how you got to your success point. You sort of simplify what you're doing, you understand what your body needs, and you drive towards that. And that's it, right? Yeah, look, I, I think you had, you had a lot of really salient points in that uh, in that last bit that you said, um, I think it's, uh, I think it's super important to remember, um, how we've evolved as, as a species. Um, and a lot of the work research I've done over the last 20 plus years has been in evolution, anthropology, human biology. Um, and I think your first point is, is so interesting and so often not talked about enough, which is we figured out a lot of this thousands of years ago. Um, and, you know, I think like any kind of science fiction monster movie, we get overly enamored with our technological skills. We think we come up with silver bullets that solve problems and then try to overextend those silver bullets. And then it always ends up turning into a Frankenstein kind of movie. Um, and history is replete with examples of, you know, you can use whatever metaphor you want, but it's sort of, you know, like Icarus, where we just get overly confident in our own uh, scientific hubris uh, and then take it too far. Um, you know, my first business, which I started with my family, my wife and my brother-in-law, uh, was uh, is called Hugh Kitchen. Uh, we're known for our organic chocolate bars. Um uh, but it started as a restaurant. Hugh stands for human. Everything I've done in the food space has some human derivative because of how I've kind of learned all of this. Um, and our slogan with Hugh Kitchen has been get back to human because we believe a lot of the modern problems, which are extremely well documented and uh, studied now in kind of all human populations, particularly more advanced uh, first world uh, populations, um, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, uh, all the chronic diseases that, that have not been, 
uh, evidenced in, in indigenous populations, even things like ADHD, autism, allergies, um, all of those things are very relatively new uh, afflictions and diseases um, and have come with sort of modern food and modern lifestyle uh, problems. Um, and so we believe, and, and I believe if you study evolution and if you study indigenous populations, which are all over the world still, who live more like hunter-gatherers, and you see that they don't have any of these chronic diseases, it's pretty clear to me that uh, almost all of these problems that we talk about and spend trillions of dollars on uh, that could be going towards much better causes are self-induced uh, uh, and should be talked about. Um, and should be talked about a lot more, that we actually have control over this. Um, and I think, you know, right now, now moving to your second point, I think we have several crises going on on the planet, one of which is obviously climate change. But I think the human health crisis is as important, if not more important. And, and, and for the, the simple reason that I don't think we can really fix the planet if we don't fix ourselves first. Um, and so you get to this point, uh, particularly your podcast, which focuses on food and technology and that intersection um, of, I think it comes down to people's value systems. And I think there are many value systems in food. The ones that are typically spoken about the most frequently are human health, planet health, uh, and animal health and welfare. Uh, and then I'd add maybe even a fourth to that, which is sort of uh, all the things that are encompassed in fair trade um, and, and how we treat people, uh, whether it's diversity, whether it's slave labor, whether it's um, hours, et cetera. Um, and I think everyone has different value systems, and, and, and I think that's okay. Um, but our value system, if we have to – and some of these are mutually exclusive. You know, you can't do them all perfectly and simultaneously. Um, our value systems, a human co, is human health first. Um, and, and we are very focused on sustainability, but if we have to make a trade-off, human health comes before planet health. And I think a lot of the innovations in the last five years that we've seen that billions and billions of venture capital have gone into have prioritized planet health over human health. Um, and I think it's a good debate and it's a good discussion, but for us at, at HumanCo, uh, which is my second company, Hugh Kitchen, uh, we sold uh, last year to Mondelez, and we can talk about that if you want. Um, but Human Co., which is my, which is my second business, uh, our value system focuses on human health first. Two things that I always find fascinating, and I, I, I'm in agreement in terms of people being very focused on the environment. Um, it's amazing to me that the human consideration of where our food comes from doesn't come before the planet. I've always been amazed by that, that um, in many instances, the environment and animal welfare supersedes human welfare. And we can see it played out in delivery, in farming, in the chocolate business, um, you know, sort of the, the global acceptance by the multinational CPGs that a lot of their chocolate is child labor, child slave yep. labor. And like, everybody's okay with that. We're going to try and reduce it by a certain date out in the future, but nobody's talking about eradicating it or that it's not okay. And those are like your M&Ms, you know, that go into your Halloween trick-or-treat bag. So as, as 
You know, and as we get more into a service-oriented industry with delivery, especially in the United States, Western cultures, especially in a place like New York City, where we're looking at convenience and delivery, we did a series on delivery and, you know, ultra-fast, super-convenient delivery to your door. People are voraciously concerned about, like, where their fruit comes from and where the farm-to-table What's the carbon footprint and who's my farmer and coming to market? No one really cares about the person on the bicycle driving from the restaurant to your front door in a snowstorm. You know, it's very interesting. There's like this blind spot of people who are sort of like that last mile or that production piece where we have a blind spot where we're really concerned about a lot of things, but we're not concerned about these people. And I, that it, infuriating to me um yeah no i think it's uh, <laughs> it's it's a really good point and and we came up with this by the way or this issue came up uh with the cosmic bliss rebranding and the launch of the grass-fed dairy line as well and i think i i've been deep in this space now for i don't know 15 years or so and we started hugh kitchen in 2010 and opened the outside uh, open the doors to the outside folks in 2012. And I think a lot of it, it it's not malicious um, from, you know, the supermajority of consumers. It's just there's an out-of-sight, out-of-mind problem. And I think there's just a lot of things we don't know. And I think not everybody has enough time to sort of go down all these different rabbit holes. Um, and there's just so many externalities and so many uh, elements in food production um, that just a lot of people aren't fully aware of. Um, and it, it, it comes up when you're, uh, in, in every facet that, that for human beings and we are, you know, whether you like it or not, we are at the top of the food chain. We make a lot of decisions as humans, uh, on how to thrive and survive, how to feed our families, um, And unfortunately, the food chain is very complex and always involves different compromises and sacrifices um, where somebody or something, you know, is is getting, quote, hurt. Um, And, you know, and and so like one of the examples I give all the time um, is for uh, some of um, uh, uh, some of the kind of plant based and vegan movement. Um, you know, if you're eating plants from a farm, um, and and any kind of farm that's in the business of farming, um, where they're actually making plants or growing plants for a living and then selling those plants as produce to a grocery store, um, which a lot of people think is far more humane, um, than typical animal agriculture where you're either consuming dairy or you're consuming, uh, meat. Um, when you're tilling the soil or you're preparing the soil for those seeds, um, you are killing tens of thousands, if not millions of, uh, rodents, bunnies, insects, um, snakes, uh, every time you till the soil. Um, and that is a, that is a decision that we are making as a species for the preparation of those plants, just as it's the same kind of decision that we make. When we choose to use an iPhone, and I'm sure some of your listeners have seen the working conditions of Foxconn where those iPhones are made, um, but we are 
uh, implicitly condoning that kind of slave labor uh, when we're making things like iPhones um, and using those iPhones. And so every aspect of food production has something uh, that probably a lot of people haven't thought about um, that may or may not be something that, that feels ethical or feels right. But, you know, there's no kind of free lunch. Like everything has externalities. And this comes back to the value systems that ultimately we just have to be okay that people have different value systems. And at HumanCo, you know, we are uh, open-minded to everybody's different value systems. Um, and we believe there's some people that are vegan, some people are vegetarian, some people are omnivorous, some people are flexitarians. Some people have different judgments about what they value and what they don't. And we just want to create better, healthier, and more sustainable options for everybody um, and, and without kind of passing judgment about whether this is right or this is wrong. And I think that needs to be in the conversation today um, because there's just so much finger pointing. There's a lot of shaming today uh, around different uh, value everything, systems. Around everything. About everything. And, mm -hmm. and, and I, I just don't think it's a productive conversation because it sort of puts us versus them or me versus you. Um, and, and in fact, and I don't mean to sound kind of like, you know, too, uh, either Pollyannish or, or, or too kind of optimistic, but we're all humans and we all have to figure out a way that we can survive and thrive for our own families. And we have to do it the best way we can. Um, and, and that involves a lot of trade-offs and a lot of compromises. And I just think that needs to be part of the discussion. Well, Coming up after the break, a part of our discussion will be offering those multiple options. And Jason's going to tell us about going from coconut to cosmic bliss and how some of his vegan customers felt about that. But we're going to take a quick break and find out who is the sponsor of this show. Did you know that Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, many of whom are listeners like you grants, and underwriters like this one. Stay with us. In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital front door, including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. Bento Box is a marketing and commerce platform built specifically for the hospitality industry. With Bento Box, get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. If there's one thing we can all agree on in the restaurant industry, it's that the working world has gotten weird. It makes sense to be thinking about your options and how to build your career in 2022. Health insurance, benefits, a 401k match. A job at Singer gives you the chance to start fresh while still working in the hospitality world you know and love, but from a different perspective. Work alongside kitchen and tabletop designers to be a part of restaurant openings all over New York City and beyond. Join our team of food service experts committed to the future of hospitality. Singer Equipment Company, now hiring. 
Industry-leading service provided by industry leaders, Singer Equipment Company. Visit singerequipment.com careers to apply today. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is in the freezer case at your grocery store. We are talking with Jason Karp, founder and CEO of Human Co. If you're interested in taking a look at his story, his brands, what they're up to, you can find them online at humanco.com. You can also follow them on social media at Human Co. And today we're talking about a business called Cosmic Bliss. And it started off as Coconut Bliss, coconut plant-based, yummy frozen dessert uh, for over a decade. Had a lot, a lot of followers. And now they are transitioning into Cosmic Bliss because next to that coconut frozen dessert is a good old-fashioned cow milk dairy ice cream. So Jason, this is such an unusual transition. Um, As I said at the top of the show, we've talked to a lot of founders and a lot of um, CEOs and people at companies who really believe that creating a plant-based version of a very popular CPG animal-based product is the way to save the planet from an environmental point of view, and that there's such a heavy load on the environment with animal agriculture that the way and the only way to survival is to eliminate the need for giant cattle farms and cow farms and dairy farms, so start making plant-based versions of hamburgers and milk and ice cream. So it's very unusual when we have a company that has been in the plant-based space one day say, hey, have you tried our ice cream? <laughs> and it's just, it's it's such an interesting uh, pivot, you know, amidst in, in this moment in time where every day I get a handful of press releases for the latest, greatest plant-based fill-in-the-blank um, that's hitting my grocery store shelves today. So tell us a little bit about coconut into cosmic yes yes well (laughs) you know it 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 has uh for some this has been obviously a a controversial uh topic um uh i don't think it needs to be and and i think a lot of consumers have been primed over the last five years or so um by some of the uh plant tech companies as you kind of referred to uh, there's been a lot of of, uh, of priming to believe that all animals are bad, that all animal products are bad, you know, whether it's inhumane or it's bad for the planet. Um, and I think the story is a lot more balanced and nuanced than that. Um, and again, I think if you study human evolution and how we've co-evolved with animals, I think if you study the history of agriculture over thousands of years, um, you know, I think there's a much more nuanced, much more balanced discussion around our relationship with animals uh, as human beings, how we work with them, how farms can work with them. And, and this, you know, we don't have time on this uh, podcast, but I would encourage your listeners to look into, uh, you know, a, a very 
uh, up and coming approach to agriculture called regenerative farming and mm -hmm. regenerative agriculture. We've actually um, done some episodes on that. Great. Yeah, so it's fantastic. I mean, in a nutshell, the idea is regenerative farming is you create a complete sort of comprehensive ecosystem for the land, which includes animal diversity, plant diversity, and you know, harvesting diversity. So you have a parcel of land and you move a variety of animals around the land so that they are eating, they are living, things are growing, you harvest sometimes, you move them around and you're taking plant resources and animal resources out of the land to then eat, but it all sort of sustains itself in a balanced kind of way. Yes, and yeah. yes, and 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 I think it's important to note as sort of a very quick headline: you cannot have healthy land or a healthy agriculture without animals and insects. Full right. stop. Mm -hmm. um, so this idea of just having like a sterile farm uh, with no animals and and insects, uh, and and by the way, the the uh, the death of those animals and insects too, mm -hmm. um, uh, it just doesn't. It doesn't work. Yeah, um, I think I think one of the easiest illustrators of that idea is bees. Yes. You know, we think about bees as being maybe in a place, in a hive. We all know the bee pollinates the flowers and sort of flies around and lands, and then that's what sort of spreads the floral diversity, and then they make honey, and it's a part of the environment. And now that we've been having for decades... Um, different diseases and issues with the bee population, that's detrimental to the floral population and the plant population in those areas. And also, I mean, people will say back to your, um, you know, food into the body and better, um, because bees were pollinating and do pollinate from all the different types of plants in a geography, they say if you eat honey you will not have allergic reactions to the plants in that geography. So like people who have like ragweed or allergies yeah. in the spring, if you're eating honey, you're sort of uh, almost immunizing yourself. Yeah, no, quite, quite literally. A, quite literally uh, you are immunizing yeah. yourself. Yeah. yeah, so that's maybe um, an easy one to understand. Yeah, and, and, and then also just obviously like everything is a, a symbiotic cycle where also if you don't have animals uh, in a way that are checked, um, they, can, they can become invasive species and destroy all of the plant life as well. And there's many, many examples of that too. Uh, there's a very prominent example in Hawaii where the axis deer that were brought over many generations ago don't have a apex predator. And when unchecked, it just destroys the entire uh, plant ecology uh, around. Um, but anyway, coming to Cosmic Bliss. So um, <laughs> Coconut Bliss was, uh, um, it, was a, it was a very nascent company. It was bought by a third-generation dairy farming family in Eugene, Oregon, um, and uh, was, uh, was a dairy-free uh, ice cream brand. And I say dairy-free versus vegan uh, because I think the word vegan comes with some other uh, connotations in terms of uh, the value systems, um, uh, and, uh, was always a dairy free, uh, ice cream brand using coconut milk. And it was also one that was, that was first and foremost focused on sustainability. 
and the practices of Coconut Bliss well before Humico got involved was really around uh, more sustainable approaches to how and where the ingredients are sourced, how the packaging is made and what goes into the packaging. Is it recyclable? How the labor is treated? Um, and so had some amazing approaches uh, around a lot of these different values that we talked about earlier. Um, uh, Human Co., uh, my business, uh, approached them a couple years ago because it was, in our opinion, the best tasting uh, plant-based ice cream on the market. Um, they uh, needed a lot of, uh, of help to get to the next level, uh, to reach more consumers, to tell their story, which we thought was terrific. Um, and after we bought it, um, the, the CEO uh, of the business who's still involved, her name is Kim Gibson Clark. Um, Kim, uh, you know, started to learn a lot about human co and our approach and our practices. Um, and she said, you know, Jason, um, uh, there isn't really a, a truly clean label, truly sustainable um, grass-fed dairy ice cream option on the market. And because they, they you know, are a third-generation dairy farming family who was in the business of making uh, ice cream, um, she had the, the chops to make such a claim. And uh, we said, okay, say more. Um, and we started doing a lot of research. And, and it, it, it's pretty unequivocal that I think anyone who's educated about what's happened with this planet over the last 50 years Nobody really likes factory farming. Nobody uh, wants... Of any kind. And I think people often forget that there is really horrific industrial farming of vegetables. Correct. Soybean, Correct. corn, genetically modified, pesticides, the whole thing. I mean, right. just because you're growing a plant does not mean you have a good farm. That's right. That's an, impo that's an important point, and thank you for raising that. And, and so we looked around and we said, okay, um, the ice cream market is very large. Uh, the research shows uh, 97, so plant-based ice cream, I would say has been around for at least 20 years and has gotten very popularized in the last call it five. And there's now literally dozens and dozens of brands of plant-based ice cream. But 97, with all of that, with all of the discussions around the benefits of plant-based, 97% of ice cream sold today in the U.S. is still dairy. And the vast majority of that dairy ice cream comes from factory farmed dairy, um, where the cows are regularly treated with antibiotics, hormones, and, and treated in very inhumane conditions. Um, and I won't go into it, but there's obviously tons and tons of, of documentaries and images that you can look up on what kind of inhumane factory farming conditions of cattle looks like. And so then we asked the question, okay, if 97% of dairy of ice cream sold is still dairy, let's sort of peel the onion a little deeper um, and, and, and ask why. And anecdotally, you know, I, I presumed I knew why. Um, my kids, for example, I have two children and I've tried to give them, you know, every plant-based ice cream you can imagine. Um, they still prefer the taste of dairy. And it turns out that, that almost everybody who is willing to consume dairy prefers the taste of dairy ice cream over plant-based ice cream. Um, and the primary reason in our own kind of research is taste and texture mm -hmm. uh, as to why people still prefer dairy ice cream. Yeah. 
So then we peeled the onion a little further and said, okay, well, why isn't there a much cleaner label, more humane, more sustainable approach to uh, that kind of dairy ice cream? Uh, and it's a few reasons. It's cost. Uh, it's quantities. You know, there are there, the quantities of 100% grass-fed milk uh, are, are significantly smaller than the quantities of conventional factory farmed milk. Well, and there's also a statistic that I read a few years ago, which said that the amount of organic milk, labeled organic milk sold in the United States was greater than the recorded production of organic milk in the United States. It's a good stat. Yeah, which is a little concerning, but it's also, you know, keeping, I mean, production, keeping up with it, even when you get out of the industrial farm complex and into things that, you know, I'm going to use the air quotes on the radio cleaner. Yeah. Um, there's, there's still a lot of questions about production capacities. Yeah. And, and, and so we said, you know what, like we've done this before where we've created a standard that has really never been done before in food at a price point that's accessible. Um, it's obviously much more expensive than, than the ultra cheap process stuff. Uh, but, but my family and I did this with Hugh, uh, and Hugh chocolate, which was a standard that I believe hadn't been done in chocolate before. Um, and, and so we had this, this this thought of, okay, how do we figure out if we could do this? Um, and over the course of about, uh, six months, um, we did a lot of work. Uh, we talked to a lot of farms. We talked to a lot of options. Um, and the other thing that was really important to us, uh, in addition to it being uh, grass-fed and grass-finished, and the finish is an important distinction, um, there's this notion uh, that, that I believe came out of Europe uh, for uh, humane treatment of animals called the Five Freedoms. Um, and, and the Five Freedoms is sort of considered the gold standard for how to measure uh, how humanely you're treating your animals uh, in a farming kind of setting. Um, and they're basic freedoms, like is the animal free from hunger? Is it free from pain? Is it free from thirst? Is it free you know, to live in a lifestyle that's consistent with how it would live in the wild? Um, and there are some farms that actually observe this standard of the five freedoms, um, which is a level that we haven't seen in any ice cream that's, that's you know, uh, distributed beyond like sort of small uh, farmer's markets. Um, and so we actually found some, some places that do it this way. Uh, and what's really interesting is because taste is paramount in basically all things food, um, it's a wonderful and convenient fact that healthier animals produce better tasting products. Um, and, and true grass fed, grass finished milk um, if you give them to consumers, and by the way, you find a lot of grass-fed dairy, although it's not advertised as such, uh, in Italy and in France, two very big food cultures, um, a lot where, of they dairy. Take, where they do take a lot of dairy in both cultures, where they do take pride uh, in their food being very high quality and not being, uh, quote, simulated or synthetic or hyper-processed. Um, and we ended up producing... A, uh, a an ultra premium in terms of quality, uh, grass fed organic ice cream 
that actually has significantly less added sugar than some of the other ultra premium players in the space. Uh, and we decided that this was such an amazing product. And then from a sustainability perspective, um, and we had this measured for our uh, farm specifically, it produces 26% less uh, greenhouse gas emissions than conventional dairy. Um, and so uh, we, ha we have created a product that we think is the best tasting uh, dairy ice cream on the market that also is considerably more sustainable than conventional dairy, that has considerable more humane treatment of the cows. Uh, and it's amazing in, in terms of flavor. Um, and we, uh, we wanted to do this because every single person we spoke to, uh, and we did some research. We also did a lot of anecdotal discussions with a lot of people. Every single person we spoke to who consumes dairy ice cream wanted to do better. They wanted a better option. They didn't want to necessarily promote or endorse the factory farming, but they also didn't want to give up dairy. Right. And like a lot of a lot of kind of questions we got from some of the the vegan customers was why not just push them to eat uh, the the plant based version like they don't have to eat dairy and I think that's sort of not acknowledging the fact that they still are eating dairy mm -hmm. and we wanted to meet consumers where they are and not necessarily pass judgment and say if you still prefer dairy ice cream we are going to provide a better option for you. Oh, and by the way, we still have our plant-based line as well. Right. I, I mean, I think the interest, it's interesting in so many ways, and I think it just, it almost circles us back to the beginning of the conversation, which is people have been eating animals as long as there have been people. Yes. In one way, shape, or form. And yes. the... Um, complexity of how they do that, whether they, you know, kill something and then take it with them as jerky or whether they decide to, you know, put up a, a tent or some sort of shelter and then keep a bunch of them with them to eat them as they go. I mean, that process has evolved. But as long as there have been people, people have been eating animals and fish and all kinds of things. So, I mean, I would think that if you would just make people eat plants, that would have happened a long time ago because it's, in many instances, eating animals is not the easiest thing to do by any stretch. I mean, it's almost like if you couldn't do it back then, why would you be able to do it now? There has to be sort of something about the way people are I mean, there's wired, an enormously right? complex discussion here <laughs> that, that, that creates incredible... Uh, like vitriol, yes. uh, per particularly with the plant-based community. Um, and by the way, you know, Hugh Chocolate is vegan. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot, of, a lot of what I have done in food has been vegan. Um, and so I am an equal opportunity uh, food producer for all diets. Yeah. And I always yeah. have been because I've recognized that I have plenty of friends that are strict vegan. I have plenty of friends that are vegetarian. Um, and I, I think it doesn't need to be such a controversial discussion. Um, well, it, it, but I agree with you. Evolutionarily, yeah, yeah. the facts are indisputable. Yeah. Um, so, yes. Well, Jason, I, I, hate to, I hate to cut you off, and I knew that this was going to happen. And it's not like I didn't warn people at the beginning of the show. But we do actually have to go because we don't have any more time to talk about this. Although I know that we could. But I think net-net... I would say the top line of this discussion is 
something for everyone. Make what you like, make what your body likes, make what your family likes, and do the absolute very best making it that you can. And yes. if everybody just tried to do their best, I think we would be in a better place. Um, well said. Well said. <laughs> well said. Jason, I want to thank you for coming on the show. We're going to have to have you back in later seasons because there's so many other things to talk about. And um, we didn't even really get into the um, voracious uh, feedback that you got from your vegan and vegetarian customers when you added dairy. Um, but I think the the ramp up and the logic to how you got there is an interesting one. So look for Cosmic Bliss. Look for the coconut and the dairy and maybe, I don't know, have them together. There's a time and a place for everything. Um, take a look at him online, humanco.com. Find them on social media at find... Find Cosmic find Bliss. Find Cosmic Bliss. Well, the That's website right. is Cosmic Bliss, but the, yeah, the social media is, is Find Cosmic Bliss. And our social media handle for Humanco is at Humanco Brands. And Jason Carp, your social media is Human Carp. At Human Carp, yep. Yep, very well. I want to thank all the listeners. We're getting ready to go into our summer hiatus. Spring hiatus we will be back um, in a few weeks with more episodes, more shows. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover or you've read about a new business or maybe you're a founder and you have the world's greatest invention you want to come on and talk about, drop us a line. We are very interactive. You can email us techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. You can find us on social media at techbyteshrn. You can always go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, and find hundreds and thousands of episodes. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.